welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 54 of the Free Cities podcast. Well, it's December the 1st today, so welcome to Advent, if that's a tradition that you observe in your household. In our home, it means that the kids have all been making an Advent calendar for each other over the last few days. Just two sheets of card and some drawing skills necessary. No, we definitely don't put chocolates behind the doors. Way too old school for that. Unfortunately, I have too many very fond childhood memories of the pure joy that you got from opening a small cardboard door every morning to reveal the picture underneath. And I'm sure some of you listening will understand this. Wasn't it like being injected with pure ecstasy when you actually got to open the double doors on the 24th? Oh my God. I used to fantasize for literally four weeks about opening those doors. Funny how things change. Times seemed a lot simpler back then. Anyway, talking of simpler times, back to today's episode. And it's a very interesting one. I'm in discussion with two gentlemen involved in the self-governing island of Sark, just off the coast of Normandy. Christopher Bowman the 23rd Seigneur of Sark and Sven Lorenz, a Sark immigrant who revitalized public interest in the island recently by creating the hugely successful Move to Sark repopulation campaign, sat down with me in the Czech Republic and we talked everything Sark from these two Sarkies. Yes, Sarkies is the word for people from Sark who are deeply involved in creating a long-term master plan for this little-known crown dependency. We discuss the past, present and future of this fascinating UK anomaly in a thoroughly informative conversation. So thanks very much to Christopher and Sven for taking the time to not only speak to me on the pod, but also for presenting the project to the Free Cities audience at our Liberty in Our Lifetime conference. Don't forget that if the idea of moving to Sark gets your spidey senses tingling, then don't forget to drop them a line or follow the links that I will put in the show notes. But if nothing else, most definitely do not forget to sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with Christopher Bowment and Sven Lorenz. I think what might be a good idea is in the beginning just to introduce yourselves. Maybe Sven, you could... uh, Give us a little background on who you are, and then we'll 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 go on to the subject of Sark and what, what what's going on there. 
Hi, so my name is Sven Lorenz. I am usually known as someone who is working in the fund management industry and I'm writing a blog called undervaluechairs.com. However, I've become very involved with the cause of Sark, a small island that is just off the coast of Normandy. It's a crown dependency, it's self-governing and it's unusual in the sense that it's essentially almost like a country. It's a fully self-governing jurisdiction, but it's only got 500 people and it's an island of five and a half square kilometers, which is about two and a half times the size of Monaco. And two years ago, I attended the first Free Cities conference and spoke about SARC because I was managing a repopulation campaign at the time. We had too few, too few residents. And I started a campaign to tell people why they should move to SARC and how they can do that. And that went viral and became a huge success in many ways. Also a learning, um, a bit of a steep learning curve in other ways, but overall a great success. And now I came back to another Free Cities conference because things have progressed further and I brought our head of state along. SARC has a hereditary head of state, the Seigneur. That's Christopher Beaumont, who's sitting right next to me here in Prague to do the podcast. And um, I think on that note, maybe over to Christopher. Sure. Uh, well, thanks very much. So uh, my name's Christopher. I um, actually grew up in England. I was born in England, grew up in England, educated in England, um, was in the army for 27 years uh, in the Royal Engineers, uh, served in Berlin, uh, West Germany, Falklands, various other places around the world, but mostly UK. Uh, and um, after leaving the army, I joined um, business, ended up with Rolls-Royce working in the um, Trent engine sort of manufacturing. They're the guys that make all the engines for Airbus. Right. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, I got a call from my uncle to tell me that my father had died. And, uh, oh, by the way, in three days' time, there's a meeting of SART government and you're expected to be there. So, uh, you swear, in, in hereditary terms, you just switch on. And uh, the obligation that I knew was coming uh, suddenly had arrived. Uh, so, I packed my bags um, and trotted across to SART to um, see what was what. And uh, a year later, I moved out of the UK and took up permanent residence on the island. So that was sort of July 2017. And I've been there full time ever since. Right. So many questions already. Um, I'm going to start with you, Sven, because I spoke to you first. But um, Germany, Sark, what's the connection between you and Sark, for example, to begin with? So I moved from my native Germany to the UK in 1998 when I was 23. That's now a quarter of a century ago, which is scary to think about. And in 2004, because of my long-standing interest in small islands, offshore jurisdictions, offshore financial havens and quirky places, I traveled to Sark for a weekend, liked it so much that somewhat unexpectedly and spontaneously I um, rented a cottage there. And I've had a bit of an ongoing connection to Sark ever since. Along the way, I briefly owned, together with a few friends, a hotel on the island. Uh, total disaster, but very interesting in retrospective. Um, everyone should own a hotel once in their life, briefly. Um, and <laughs> really? <laughs> no, don't, don't. <laughs> um, and in 2017, 
I, after coming back from living in the Galapagos Islands for four years, where I managed a conservation organization, I decided that it was a good time in my life to move to Sark basically properly. And I moved everything over there. And since 2017, that's been my base and my only home. I travel extensively, but um, I live there. That's the long and short of it. Right. I noticed you you, met, you spoke about it in the we. You t- spoke about it as we. So you obviously feel very much a part of the SART community. Is that fair to say? Uh, very much so, yeah. As everyone does. Is that fair to say as well? Everyone that lives there, is there, is there quite a solidarity amongst, what do you call them? SAR? SARKeys. SARKeys. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Um, there are, <laughs> like any small community, you'll have people who've been there longer than somebody else. And they consider themselves to be more Saki than somebody who's relatively recent. So relatively recent, um, you know, when, when do you become a local? Probably when your grandparents are in the graveyard. Yeah, really? So uh, becoming a local is, is a matter of legend as opposed to actually being there, which is a real pain. Yeah. Uh, but Sven and I sort of got together uh, around that 2007, so he'd come back from Galapagos, we hadn't met at that time, but, but I was asked to do a talk uh, to the Chamber of Commerce in Sark about what my first impressions were, having just arrived. And um, one of the things I said at that uh, presentation was that, in my opinion, there weren't enough residents on the island to make it tick. Because I just lived through the first winter I'd lived on Sark, and it was very quiet. Um, and Sven picked up on this and we, we started to talk and found that we had almost every aspect of what we're trying to achieve now in common. Um, and we've been stuck together like glue ever since. Do, do you think that <clears throat> what's prompted this is you, you've realised you're not really making the most of Sark? Is that, is that, is that something that... There, there was a very specific trigger in uh, spring 2020 during the first lockdowns. Uh, the population of Sark had fallen from probably 600 in around 2010 to probably at the time 360. We, we don't have government stats really as such, so we can only estimate. But the supermarket was rumored to be on the cusp of closing down for a lack of customers. And if you live on an island and you have a supermarket and a small shop and the supermarket is threatening to just go out of operation, then all alarm bells obviously go on. And I just happened to have a blog that enables me to reach out to a large number of people internationally and I have a, I think, quite solid network and I then subsequently came up with the idea, let me write an ebook about how and why to move to Sark and I published that on the internet. Uh, on the second day, the BBC from Guernsey rang me up and wanted to speak to me about this. First thinking, you know, this is another scam from Sark and then talking to me, they realized that I'm actually genuine in what I was proposing to do. Uh, and they did a well-meaning article about both of us, about me having the backing of the senior for this, which without which I would not have done this. Then it went viral. Um, and then it had a certain dynamic of its own as well. You, you can't quite foresee these things. I got thousands of emails. Um, we had 120 people rock up on the island within uh, four months. Um, it was during COVID. There was the Brexit deadline. So EU citizens could come and settle, but only for a certain period of time before a deadline expired. And then they couldn't easily move there anymore. So there was a lot of factors conspiring, really, um, not all of which we could have foreseen. We also were a little bit lucky and it seems to be the right product at the right time. Yeah, uh, that's. I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. I, 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 I think we should talk about the history of Sark even, because I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't even know 
even probably where it is. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, um, why it is, which is fascinating in itself. Yeah. Um, let, let's get that out of the way first, okay. because I think that, that has to be talked about. Very brief history lesson then. The Channel Islands are right next door to France, just off the coast of uh, the, the Cherbourg Peninsula. So we've got Saint-Malo to the south and Cherbourg itself to the east. And uh, our nearest ports are Delette and Decartre. Uh, um, and they, they're visible from the island. I can see France quite clearly. Um, and they've always been part of the Duke of Normandy. That's, that's, that's where it comes from. So when William the Conqueror came over to England in 1066 and took over, he took with him his land in France and he became the king of England and its dominions and he took a great chunk of France with him. And over the next few hundred, year, uh, few hundred years, um, the kings of England took over large tranches of France, so the north coast, the west coast, right down to Bordeaux. And the Channel Islands were part of that, so we were part of the dominion of the king of England and France, as it was in those times. And uh, we gave France back the bits I say we, the UK, uh, Britain, England at the time, gave, gave France back the bits it had taken in around the 1200s. But the Channel Islands got sort of quietly forgotten about and they remained part of the, the crown land as part of the Duchy of Normandy. And the king is still the Duke of Normandy. It's one of his titles. So we owe allegiance to the King of England via and because he is the Duke of Normandy. And um, there we stuck. And, you know, we've been inhabited since Neolithic times. Uh, the Channel Islands have been inhabited from Neolithic times. Sark bang smack in the middle. It's seen as a place of um, spirituality in those times. We've got, we've got grave goods going back. We've got Neolithic um, uh, dolmens on the island where people were living and obviously having some form of religious ceremonies, whatever those were. And, and much more than the island would expect to have, given its size. And the island continued to be inhabited. Um, the, the, the latest, or the, the earliest time it got inhabited with a, a, a proper modern society was a monastery set up in the 6th century. And uh, that monastery survived with its uh, population of monks and its retinue of people looking after them right up until the Black Death, so we're talking mid-1300s. Uh, and that did for the island. It killed everybody off, and the island fell to be uninhabited, except being used as a base for pirates, or occasional incursions by the French, who were sort of annoyed, I guess, that the Channel Islands that they could see were not part of France anymore. So there was still an interest in, in taking back. So we have... Um, Elizabethan fort remains built by the French on the island. Um, and, it, you know, the French came and went, you know, sometimes they, you know, they just vacated. Uh, and it was in uh, the 1560s, so this is the early part of Queen Elizabeth I's reign, when uh, a businessman in Jersey called Hillier de Cartret, who was a senior of one of the parishes, in Jersey, and also a hereditary bailiff, so the senior citizen of Jersey, decided that he would put a stop to this. And he um, came with a retinue of people to set up shop 
uh, on Sark to form a permanent base uh, that was English, that stopped it being inhabited by pirates and the French. Um, and having done that, he then went to the court in England and petitioned the Queen to say, this is what I've done. Would you grant me this land to be added to my estate? Uh, so Sark at that point was created a fief, which is a, um, a feudal parcel of land. And it uh, got its charter in 1565. And that's still where we are. So we still live under that charter that was granted in 1565. And my position as the 23rd senior of Sark still relies on that relationship between um, me, the island and the crown. Is it true, I heard, that you pay a ground rent of £1.79? That is true, yes. Uh, thank God for, for, for not tying stuff into RPI, because inflation yeah. didn't take place. I mean, one of the quirks of Sark, um, and you know, one of the old things was, you, know, you used to pay your tithes in crops. So I've still got somebody on the island who pays me rent in wheat. Really? Now, wheat... You know, wheat is, whatever price wheat is, it's inflation-proof. Um, but the rent of Sark was set in monetary value without an inflation Do you know what tracker. that was worth in 1565? 50 sols. What does that mean? Well, it was 50 shillings. Well, yeah, in those right. days, 20 shillings to the pound-ish. What could you buy for 179 in uh, 1565? Uh, oh, probably quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't a know. parcel of land or a, a suit or a, you know. Uh, you could probably employ somebody for a year. Oh, right. You know? So, um, you know. Wow. Now, I, yeah, what a, a positive use of inflation at last. Yeah. I, that's a really good. <clears throat> so now you find yourself, but you're not, uh, but you're a, a democracy now, right? Yeah, so 2008, um, the then Labour government, uh, encouraged by... Uh, others, um, and it was pointed out to them that there was still this feudal system living within the European sort of umbrella that didn't seem very fair. How could, you know, how could people who didn't own property have a say in the way things were were being run? So, democracy by universal suffrage is sort of a, yeah, that's the that's the standard. Um, so we were forced, I think it's probably the best way of putting it, Asked to, to change. sternly. No, uh, you know, we were blackmailed. Um, essentially, the, the UK government said, if you don't change the system we think you should change to, it's up to you, but if you don't change it, we're not going to, we're going to make it really difficult for you to pass any legislation, because it has to go through the Privy Council. And the Privy Council is mostly populated by uh, politicians um, right, I was going to ask you, how self-governing are you? Like, how, wh what's the extent of your self-governing status at the moment? Like, can you, have you got a criminal court, for example? Or a, you know? We do, but we still, we live under the umbrella of the UK legal system. So you can appeal uh, stuff in the SART court, it will go to Guernsey and eventually end up in the UK Supreme Court. So how many, I mean, like you've only got a few hundred people living there. Well, how big's the court? <laughs> uh, the court, well, it's, it's, it's a room, uh, you know, not dissimilar in size to this. And then you've got a judge. Uh, we've got or a do judge. you have to bring a judge no, in? No, no, we have our own judge. And mostly it's minor disputes. 
and it needs somebody to arbitrate for those minor disputes and it's sort of judgment by consent yeah um, and, and that's a good thing you keep it local uh, and you know it's it's nice and close to all the people that are involved in in the judgments so we have very limited criminal powers but we have un- unlimited civil powers um, I mean, well, you know that's that's how it is but uh, the main thing is that we we raise our own taxes and use those taxes for our own purposes we're not beholden we're not represented by anybody outside the uh, outside the island so we don't have no representation in the UK they give us no money we owe them no obligation to do anything apart from live within the the guidelines of the UK framework I no, I think don't that's, mind me asking are you in the red are you in the red no 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 uh, in fact uh, by law, we're not allowed to be in the red. So we are a, um, a one of the only jurisdictions, I guess, that has no debt. Hmm. Uh, we don't have much in the bank. You're either. not allowed. So you're not allowed to be in debt. You're not allowed. The government's not allowed to be in debt. Yes. What's that in the constitution or something? Yeah. That's brilliant. Like why well, don't you, all governments have that? <laughs> well, yeah, it is. It is. But um, you know, most governments get into debt because they're buying. Um, they're buying that debt in order to fund infrastructure. Yeah, I know. Now, but we, we know how it ends, though. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, It ends do. with tyranny in almost all... Ca- well, eventually. Yeah. You know, everyone's... All, the temptation to, to print a little bit more money and, yeah. and spend it on a war or this so, or that. Yeah. So when it comes to infrastructure projects, the last major infrastructure project was building of the harbour, which was started in uh, the early 30s, but got um, sort of delayed a bit by the Second World War. Uh, to pay for that, a, a new tax was introduced, and it was a landing tax. Hmm. And just to demonstrate that taxes never, ever go away once you've introduced them, the harbour's long since been paid for, but the tax is still there. Uh-huh. You, sorry, Sven, you were going to say something then? I think with regards to the status of self-governance, it's worth mentioning, and, and Christopher, correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> it's very much down to... SARC governs its own affairs, but has to demonstrate good governance. Now, obviously, the term good governance is is a very broad one. However, when in 2008, the UK government um, got involved because of a lawsuit and outside pressure, it was only because running something based on a feudal system was seen as going against really basic human rights. And that's where a line was drawn and pressure was applied to say, you got to change in a certain way here. Yeah, that's fair. Other than that, I I cannot even think of anything in the last 50 years where pressure would have been applied to SARC to do anything in particular. So the island is effectively left alone. The change to democracy was a one-off. Yeah, I think before that, the, the, the previous time pressure was put on SARC to change was way back in 1675 when the judicial system, which had been Jersey based up to that point, was made to change to the Guernsey-based system. I mean, they look pretty similar. Mm. But nonetheless, Guernsey wanted its nearest neighbour, populated neighbour, to conform to its standards. Why do you think that you haven't taken the same route as something like the Isle of Man and tried to attract, say, I don't know, certain businesses that can use your legislative ability to do X, Y, Z. It's just because you're a smaller, too small, too it's far away. probably because we're too small. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon in the Channel Islands to find that they've done exactly the same as the Isle of Man. Alderney uh, is a big gambling hub. So lots of gambling institutions have set themselves up in Alderney. Yeah. Um, but there's, 
we're just a little bit small. And there are other quirks that have made it just slightly more difficult to do stuff. What about financial institutions, people that don't have as much infrastructure, say? Uh, I mean, what is your business model at the moment? Tourism? Yeah. 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 So back in the 90s, SARC became a little bit of a financial center, but in the wrong way. So because of its lack of regulation at the time, it attracted a huge offshore industry, for lack of a better word, which was called the SARC Lark. And all sorts of things happened that, I mean, genuinely should not have happened that were just completely outside of, you know, um, uh, any any debate whether that should ever be done in any financial center. And eventually that led to a crackdown. And Sark is next door to Guernsey, which is a huge financial center and a very well-run one. And because there is this, I always call it sort of a brotherly relationship between the Channel Islands and also with the UK Yes, they're all independent. Guernsey governs itself, Jersey governs itself, and then there's SARC, and the UK is totally separate. But one speaks to each other, and certain minimum standards need to be adhered to. Um, and this is not so much about anyone exerting pressure. It's just that, you know, we're in this together, and we've got to find a, a sensible way forward. And to give you an example, immigration policy into the Channel Islands has always been coordinated with the UK, not because the Channel Islands couldn't manage that themselves, but because there are no boundary, no borders between the Channel Islands and the UK. So to make the Channel Islands a backdoor entry to the UK would really not be to anyone's benefit and would, would really spoil that very close relationship that exists there. And that's why in the 2000s, SARC um, then put itself under the financial regulatory regime of Guernsey, not because Guernsey would have power over SARC as such, but because SARC said, we have 600 people, we can't set up a financial regulator. We've got to sort out these issues here that are going on on our island. And so today, SARC is basically overseen by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. So as you can see, there are lots of individual aspects. Everything needs explaining. And to answer your question about why hasn't SARC worked to attract industry yet, everything in SARC is below critical mass. And that's why it was never worth anyone's while to market the place. It's complicated. Um, you need to have lived there probably for quite a number of years to be able to even just source all the information you need to market the place. And I have done that, but I've done this in a way that I would describe as a, you know, a hybrid between a commercial project and a hobby. Um, it's not really worth anyone's while. That's the, the long answer. Really? So um, and not even... <clears throat> You still have regulatory power, right? So in the sense you said that you, you sort of deferred to Guernsey for financial regulations. You could, if you had someone moved to the island who is a financial regulator, you could still come up with your own regulations. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I yeah, yeah, right. see no reason why you could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't have our own company register, but there's no reason why we couldn't. Yeah. And we have engaged the authorities yeah. in Guernsey also in a dialogue with regards to a company register. And the indication was, yes, you could do this if you do it properly. Hmm. What's the the relationship between the senior and... Is senior, isn't it? Or senior. 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 It sounds a bit French. Spanish, yeah, senior. The senior and the government, then? Uh, <clears throat> well, I'm a non-political figure. So uh, my relationship with the government is um, very similar to the king's relationship with the UK Parliament. And uh, how many people are in the government? 18, oh, right. 18 voting members, 18 elected members. There are two additional members. That's the Speaker, who's elected. You've got a house, and, have you? And me. Have uh, you got a house with, yeah, it, with we the do. Speaker? Yeah, we ah. 
And what are the different job titles at the, with, with that few people in the, the government? Do you have like particular job titles or are these just people representing? They, they, they were, so they're called concierge. Right. Uh, so that's their title rather than, you know, a, a member of parliament. Yeah. Um, and they govern via committee. Right. So they, they sit on various committees and somebody's the chair of a committee. Um, and they, they don't have titles within government. And have there been any interesting governance issues of late? Or is that is it mainly things like building, you know, design, whatever, you know? I think something interesting was the tax review. So for the first time, in, I think probably 20 years, if not more, more. there was a tax review committee um, because SARC does have to consider long-term sustainability issues with its finances. And especially among new residents, there was always the question, you know, could SARC one day introduce an income tax or something like that? And the work of the tax review committee, I think, just simply confirmed that on SARC there is a culture, a deeply rooted culture of keeping government small, keeping the tax system simple. There is no appetite for an income tax. There is no appetite for introduction of a VAT, value-added tax. Um, right now, in simplified terms, you pay a tax that is essentially based on the size of your property. The, the, the technical details are slightly different, but that summarizes it. And you don't need to report about income or assets if you don't want to. And um, the Tax Review Committee, I think, did a great job with confirming that SARC is going to stay a minimalist government jurisdiction that will be fiscally responsibly run. Is that a fair summary, Christopher? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I guess that um, the lack of income tax is rooted in the fact that SARC doesn't have a large number of people earning high income. So you, you, can, you can have income tax if you've got a, a base with which to tax. But if you don't have that base, and you've got most of the people on the island are living uh, on pretty low skill, low wage, it, it, that's what the economy is based on, uh, then having an income tax really just doesn't make any sense. So you've not attracted the kind of offshore people who want to, you know, park themselves there. I mean, there are one or two. Yeah, uh, sure. We'll we have an accountancy. Yeah, but is well, that I mean, is that common in 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 the Channel Islands? I I always thought of the Channel Islands as places that rich people went to sort of buy a house and position themselves and and then. I think that's more uh, on the bigger islands uh, because you give up an awful lot when you go to Sark. Um and uh, you know the, the the cultural aspects of Sark. There's no cinema. There's no theatre. There's, no, there's you have to get on a boat to go somewhere else. Um, uh, is there an airstrip? There isn't, no. Um, uh, it's not to say it's not big enough to have one, but we choose not to. And in fact, we have protected airspace as well, so we don't get planes flying particularly low over the island. And all this was which, conscious, consciously uh, done? Uh, absolutely. You're car-free as well, right? We're car-free, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's not big enough to warrant having a car. I mean, I, I go to the shops, I've got a bicycle, it's electrically assisted, I can fit shopping in the panniers... I, what do I need a car for? Very uh, point. How 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 big is it in square? Um, uh, it's fifteen hundred acres, if that means anything to you. It's about five kilometres by two and a half. Five by two. That that means more. Yeah. So it's, and it, it's it's a diamond on top of a diamond when you look at the map. It's it's not a sort of rectangle. Hmm. And you don't get uh, claustrophobic when you're there. No, no, just out of interest. Absolutely not. It's one of those aspects of SART that, that whilst everyone is very close to the sea, 
Unless you're actually on the edge, you can't see the sea. Uh, because it's a plateau about 250 foot up. So 100 metres, 80 metres. So it's 80 metres tall, but it's it, it eventually, essentially, it's flat on top. So you can be on top and you have no idea that you're on an island at all. And it's it's worth mentioning, I think, that so when people think of cabin fever and claustrophobia, first of all, the island is actually bigger than people think it is. Once I've walked them across it for the first three hours and they've only seen like 20% of it, you yes. know, and they start to realize oh, it's much bigger than I thought. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of topography to it as well. Uh, social life is super interesting because anyone who moves to Sark tends to be an interesting person. So even though we only have 550 people right now, social life is actually really diverse. And we've had people from you know, Australia and elsewhere comment to us that they've never lived in a place where they made so many friends so quickly and had such an interesting social life. And then, very important to keep in mind, Guernsey is just half an hour by boat, or 45 minutes if it's the slow ferry. And Guernsey has 62,000 residents, it's a finance centre, it's very wealthy, and having that on our doorstep changes the dynamics because you can always nip over to Guernsey for like Shopping Wednesday and things like that. And what about the demographics then on, on Sark? has been terrible, but has improved somewhat already. So before I started this repopulation campaign, the average age was above 60, oh. which is terrible when you think that the UK is 42 and the UK is not a particularly young country either. And I don't, th we have some statistic, I think now it's probably after the influx of new residents, it's probably somewhere above 50. Uh, yeah, so over 50% of the population is over 65. How many fam young families have you got? Uh, Roughly. A decent number About because of the 15, school being 20. so good. 15 or 20. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, and that's based on schooling, really. So the school is small. I think it's got 25 students in it at the moment. It takes children from the age of 3 to 13, and then secondary education is done in Guernsey or elsewhere, but primarily, primarily in Guernsey. Um, and that certainly puts some people off. Uh, so there are some people who don't like the fact that they're going to lose their child at the age of 13 and have to send it away to, to school. Mm. Um, so, but, you know, Sven, Sven's right. You, people say hello. <laughs> you know, you walk around the streets and people will not ignore you. They'll, they'll, they'll wave. They'll say good morning, good afternoon. Even the ones who don't like you. Even, yes, even those. <laughs> if it's anything like my community, I live in a very remote community in Wales. Yeah. Um, the reason you say hello to the people you don't like is because you're stuck with them. And I should imagine that's exactly the same on Sark. It is. There's no point in making uh, overt enemies in a place like that. Because I, <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those things. So Sark is extremely good at getting on with people. And the reason for that is that if you are in a relationship and you break up, if you're in the UK or if you're anywhere else, you move to the next village yeah. to avoid doing that. Uh, but in Sark, you can't move to the, the next village. There isn't one. Yeah. So you're still stuck and you're going to bump into each other in the local shop or the pub or you know, a restaurant. You, you can't avoid it. So people rub along together very well. What, does it have a centre around the old harbour then or whatever? Like, no, what's, it, doesn't, is it, it doesn't really have... Where's the shop, a, for example? Well, the shop is on the street. <laughs> and what else the, is on that street? Uh, well, there's a couple of restaurants, um, charity shop. <laughs> oh, you've got uh, a charity shop? Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, is, uh, it a, is it one of the big brands or is it your no, own? No, no, it's our own. Yeah, uh, yeah. It looks after... A, a med, it, it's, a, it's a medical charity for the island, uh, which is you know something that... 
is the usual charity for people to give to on the island because it's for the island. Hmm. Um, but uh, so, all right, let's get on to the the repopulation campaign then, because for, I suppose my first question is, what do you envisage? Like, what's the population that you think? Well, this would be would be really going. You know, we'll be cruising at I don't know two thousand, whatever. I don't know. Um, where you get, uh, like, I mean, for example, would there be, when you said that if I lived there, my children would have to go away for school at 13, that puts me off instantly. How many people would say have to live there if you had secondary education? For this, is, this, is a, this is really the crux of the matter. Everything in SARC always boils down to population number and our current lack of critical mass. So we give as examples, as examples that right now, until very recently, we usually weren't even able to fill all the empty spaces in Parliament. There were empty seats in the House because not enough people were willing to stand. We also don't have a baker because a bakery just simply couldn't survive on that um, population size. Now, two things really. Uh, one is if you speak to urban planners, they will tell you that to have a viable, sustainable community, you need 1,100 to 1,300 households. That's a rule of thumb in that industry a household in the uk is 2.4 people so you can you know come to a figure there very importantly we are not saying that we actually know what the figure should be for sark for sark it could be something very different and we haven't come into sark with a proposal to do x y or z specifically we said we want the population to tell us what it is that they want and what they feel is worth protecting and what they feel should be changed and we've done a uh, a, a bottom-up exercise and we are now crunching numbers based on that feedback and we can say there are a couple of things we can help with financially and in, and in terms of investment but certain other things may not be possible but um, that's a very long-winded answer of saying that it is not us who are trying to define a figure for what is the right population size. We're trying to get it from the population and then work with experts to determine that and turn it into a long-term master plan. I think it's fair to say, though, that, that we both uh, would agree that it's not enough at the moment. and There need to be more people. What are, the main, we... what are the main things that people want that they haven't got now? Better harbour facilities. So the harbour is something that affects 99.9% .9 of the population. Um, it's it's pretty bad in many ways in terms of user friendliness, reliability, looks. I mean, as an example, the island is burning the rubbish in the harbour. So tourists who get off a boat are often greeted by um, smoke that contains floating little bits of plastic that were just burned. Um, so there's definitely something to be done. And this is where we've already um, made a first step to say we can help. We've hired the one of the world's leading experts for harbours and marinas and had him create an assessment which we're going to publish probably in a week's time or something like that yeah. um, and a few things fell out of a consultation that I think were a consensus yeah. so um, uh, derelict properties were, were something that was high on the agenda sorry uh, high on the agenda of, of, of dislikes um, and that's something that we're very keen to put right because if you acquire those derelict properties that are uh, lacking in investment and, and we bring bulk investment then we can do something about that why are there derelict properties on there? Well, uh, so... You, I would have thought that a place like that would have... People would buy those properties, right? Yeah, they would. Um, the, the difficulty has been that um, taking a charge on a property, having a mortgage, was illegal. Uh, and that a charter came out in 1611 that made it illegal to raise a charge on a property or to divide property. 
so that was overturned uh, as late as 2018. Right, I was going to say so that you can, you can just, sort these problems out. Right? You can, yeah. but uh, the consequence of having that long-term, nobody's ever borrowed money in Sark means that there isn't a market for borrowing money in Sark. And the institutions don't like that risk. They don't understand it. It's a very small market. We're talking, you know, perhaps 10 to 20 mortgages uh, getting set up. And that's just too small for a bank to take a risk on. They're not interested. Really? So if I tried to get a mortgage to buy a property to do up on Sark, I'd be rejected because it's Sark. Yes. Not because of my liquidity, my ability to pay, really. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's got to do with uh, the fact that the repossession system, so if you default, hmm. what happens? That's never been tested. So if it's never been tested, banks are saying, do you know, I'm not sure it's going to work. And uh, this obviously affects young people, especially who are trying to get on the property ladder. And as part of this overall plan that we've started to formulate, which we've worked on for two and a half years already, we've also engaged with a bank. Me being from the finance sector is, is occasionally a bit helpful in that regard. And we have a bank at the ready that would be willing to step in if there was a large investor who provides what is called a first loss guarantee for the initial set of mortgages and who's just generally helping them to make their first steps towards creating a SAC property market and a, a SAC mortgage market rather. Um, so these things are all possible to resolve. They need a party to have the energy, the financial firepower and the expertise to get things going. And I think that's true in many areas of SAC. This is very yeah. much what and we have. It's one of those things that you can only do at scale. So if we had... If, if SARC continued to evolve on an individual basis, there would never be enough critical mass of finance unless they all got together and decided to pool all those resources. That just doesn't, doesn't happen. How many properties are there then that, that could be renovated? There are 330 buildings on the island and no one has a precise figure. It's all up to interpretation, but probably 15 to 20% of that at least is derelict or un... And never mind what's underutilized. There's an extraordinary amount of work to be done on real estate in Sark. And the tourist industry doesn't offer you the option to have someone come in, do up a few properties, rent them on Airbnb, I don't know. Yeah, but you've got to have the finance. Yeah, but that's to, what to, I mean. There's no one out the, there. The, the issue is, and this is why we've proposed to create a master plan for Sark that looks at all aspects at the same time. Uh, they're, they're really hotels. Yes, other hotel companies have looked at them. And they kind of like the idea because Sark is the jewel of the Channel Islands. It's a beautiful place. There has been a tourism industry for a long time, etc., etc. But then in due diligence, it always falls apart because once they look at the underlying issues of Sark, such as is the electricity supply safe? What about connectivity of the islands? Um, there are so many red flags that make any investor then say, ooh, uh, that's just too risky. There's too many things that are outside of my control. And unless someone creates a master plan, uh, I'm convinced no one will invest large sums in SARC, except for maybe a party like us who are making it their job to put all of these things together and make it happen. It makes sense. When you put it like that, it makes total sense. But if you've got, if you say, if you've got an investor looking at a hotel, and they have, uh, and they're usually hoteliers coming to look at hotels, so the hoteliers are not construction firms generally. So it's just not worth their while. Uh, but if, if we come in and um, buy a, or acquire a swathe of property that includes three hotels, 
uh, with a potential site for a fourth. One is definitely derelict and needs, it's empty now, uh, needs money spent on it. We need to look at it from a structural engineering point of view. You know, it, it could cost hundreds of thousands to put right, or a couple of million to put right. Uh, something just sprung to mind. I mean, instantly was, <clears throat> and this is completely off topic here. But have you you've been have you approached or have you been approached by any film crews wanting to turn that into a little documentary and or a little fly on the wall thing? Uh, yes, you're not the first one to ask. Right. Okay. No, I was just saying because if you haven't, you're missing a trick there because. I come from that world and you can see the opportunity to a, a actually make a bit of money but b get it publicized and and make it something and I know those things tend to burn brightly in the beginning and then fade but it's better than nothing anyway it's beside the point um so yeah so you've your cool, tell me what your plan is then so in short what we've proposed is to purchase a large amount of property on Sark we think probably something to the tune of 100 million worth of property, 100 million pounds, and have an outside party of independent experts help the island, ideally the entire island, not just us, to develop a master plan for Sark's next 20, 30, 50 years. Um, Christopher's son has also been involved. He's 26. Eventually he'll take over. And to then make a concerted effort to sort out not just the real estate that we have purchased by then, but to do all sorts of other things that will be good for the island and good for the community. So we have proposals for affordable housing, for um, setting the energy situation right, which has been very problematic on Sark. We can certainly help with getting something done for the harbour situation. The harbour is government-owned, so it's not really our job. But we're trying to be helpful to all of these things. We've been engaging with all sorts of stakeholders. Uh, Everything where we've ever hired experts to look into problems and potential solutions, we've committed to publishing the results of that. So we're very transparent as well. So we're really a hybrid between a private investment project on a very large scale, because unless you do that scale, it's not going to happen, and someone who wants to work with the community, with key stakeholders, and bring in outside experts and international expertise to create a SARC that is... Um, that protects what makes it so special, but it also takes a step forward because it has to take a step forward in one or the other aspect. Sorry, Christopher, that was me speaking no, when, no, when you should have said it. I, I, I agree with that entirely. Um, you know, Can I ask a quick question? The 100 million, does that pay for renovation of these properties? No, no, no. that's on top of it. And uh, I can just add, uh, raising that money is not the issue. So we, we spent two years working on an investment case and we had many, many conversations with investors and Fundraising is never easy and we also needed time to find the, um, the right way to, pro to, to, to um, uh, uh, show the investment case to investors. We've now cracked that nut. So we've really put a, you know, a, a tick in that box and said fun funding is not our issue anymore. Now it's about the doing stuff. Funding it, for the property. Funding for the purchase and subsequent, call it redevelopment, refurbishment, right. extending. That's it's it's a, and on one hand it's a large sum. On the other hand, it's the equivalent of two buildings in Mayfair in London. So you mm. know, it, it it's not an insurmountable exercise to raise that sort of money. So okay, well, so you're at the point where you've got the potential now. So what's the, what what would you consider holding you back currently? I don't. I wouldn't say anything is holding us back. Um, it's just that these are complicated planning steps and processes to go through and 
they have to be done in a certain order and sometimes you also have to wait for something. I mean, when you hire an expert, you know, to write a report that takes a couple of months until it comes out and all that. Um, so I think we've been advancing as fast as anyone could have advanced with this. Um, we've also had the good luck that we had seed money to, to make that all happen. So we've probably spent by now something to the tune of £300,000 on that. Um, so it's a serious project. It takes time and um, we haven't, as I always say, currently we're all concept and no property. So we haven't acquired these properties yet, but we're in, in conversations. Um, and I would phrase in a more positive way. I think we're probably in the last 20% of making that project happen. The first 80% we've already worked our way through. However, there's no guarantee it will happen. And there's more work ahead and it'll be another, I don't know, three months, six months, nine months, whatever. But it's it's not going to be years before we know whether this goes ahead. What, what, but I don't understand. Is that because you can't buy the, you can't discover who owns the property or something? Or like what what's what you said you couldn't you couldn't be sure that you can get all the property uh no to, to to give you a concrete example so we had very good discussions with sufficiently large investors who said i'll back you in this but before i write checks to you i want to be really sure that it's not just christopher and sven telling me that this is going to be all right and this is going to work we want to hear something from the community so we then went ahead and hired an organization that's called the Princess Foundation, which is, an, among other things, urban planning and sustainability uh, related organization, which happens to have the backing of Prince, uh, now King Charles. He's the president of the organization. Um, and we brought them to the island to do a community engagement process where the foundation established what it is that is currently the, what does the, what does the population believe and what, what do they feel about Sark? Uh, and that resulted in a report getting published. That report came out in July. Um, and based on this report, we're doing further stakeholder engagement to show that what we're proposing is the right thing and we will have other people buy into it. But um, July was also the peak tourist season in Sark and then August as well. So that tells you that there's a certain process that takes time and this is what we're currently working through. And the, the plan... How how um, developed is it? I mean, have you got, you know, is there a map with a bunch of buildings on it and some this and that and this is where this is going to go? And yeah, we're really speaking of two plans. So we could take the position that we're buying property worth 100 million, which is a you know decent sized portfolio and it's going to include X, Y and Z. And this is our plan for it. And we could just leave it at that, use the existing legislation to get permission for whatever it is that we want to do on there. And, and not do anything further. However, we really have the ambition um, for all the obvious reasons that we want to do something that solves other issues for Saab, not just matters that relate to this property portfolio. And that's what I call sort of the wider plan. And for that, we will absolutely not be the people who determine what will be in there. It will be a bottom-up exercise run with independent ex experts to determine what does the population want. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fair enough. So, so it's it's two options, really. Which, and what did that sh report show you that the population wanted then? Well, essentially, um, it wanted to keep uh, the he the heritage aspects of the island that make it a, a place that you, you fall in love with when you step onto it. Um, but it also uh, was quite clear that there are some things that it, it doesn't like. It doesn't like derelict property. It doesn't like rubbish all over the place. It wasn't particularly keen on the way the government was running things. Um, it, it certainly didn't like the harbour. And that perhaps came as the biggest surprise to us was the 
the, the strength of feeling, uh, the amount of emphasis that was put on, we really don't like the way the harbour is organised. Um, and, and, you know, we can genuinely do something about that. Uh, but that's in the phase two plan, really. The phase one plan is just buy, renovate. And we could, at that point, just say, right, we'll sell it all um, and walk away, having done that first investment case. But that, that's not really the aim. The aim is to create a, a community that is sustainable and will survive for the next few generations without having to go through this whole process again. It's lucky there's a, well, a, a senor, a senor, because you, like the monarch, monarchs get to think much longer term than your average government. And uh, I'd say that's definitely part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, uh, you know, back in the day when we had the old feudal system, the old feudal system was built on uh, having a long-term vision mm. of the future. Landowners that were, you know, that was their future. They needed to protect it for the next generation mm. and the next generation. Yeah, was it, is it, I, I'd never come across the, the case for monarchy until relatively recently. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it has its downsides. I mean, you, you're, you're fine until you get a bad monarch. And then you're buggered. But on the whole, if you get a good one, I can you see this a lot in the Middle East, uh, you get a phenomenal round of, you get phenomenal countries arising with long-term thinking. And um, yeah, it's, I suppose, on a small island like Sark, it's probably a pretty good, would that, I mean, what's, what do you think about governance in general? Like, how do you view the democratic system versus the feudal system versus whatever? I mean, whatever system. Uh, well, uh, I, the feudal system worked quite well and had worked for 400 years without anyone sort of mucking about with it. So, but I would say that um, because, uh, you know, back in the day, we were the head of that feudal system. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I have no problem with democracies apart from the fact they don't think long term. Exactly. Uh, and that's the problem with democracies. We've got everyone with, with short term interests. Uh, based upon, am I going to be in power next time there's an election? Yeah. So nobody really thinks longer than five years into the future, and that's straight after they've been elected. Well, nothing happens for two years anyway, um, and then you've got people fighting for a year in the middle to get something done, and then they're starting to concentrate on how they're going to get re-elected. Mm. Um, so democracies, sort of, you know, I get that, but... Well, it does disenfranchise large numbers of people as well, of at least fifty percent on the whole, and then of that fifty percent, well, actually, that who, was a, who even voted? It, I mean, how many? When you get a vote at yours, is it just the the parliament that votes, or to, like who? How do you no, elect the, your your the, the politician? Uh, you know, the community votes, and and the turnout is really genuinely quite high. But what was interesting in the last, you you have to qualify as a resident for a couple of years before you're entitled to vote. And there were a large number of people turning up to the polling station uh, saying, well, I pay my taxes, why can't I vote? Well, you haven't been here long enough. And what were the big issues during the election? Go ahead. <laughs> two years. Two years. Is two years, that's what I said. Yeah. Um, what, what, were the, what were the biggest campaigns at the last election? You don't, we don't campaign. Right. So it's, what are they it's, voting for then? Just the, the person. Okay. And so it's, it's, normally... it's personality based. Everyone right. knows everyone else. Nobody puts out a manifesto generally because the the, the the general thought is, well, everyone knows what I think. 
Is there a Dutch... So what's the political um, landscape like? There isn't, a, there isn't a political landscape at all. It's issue-based. All right. Um, Generally speaking, though, would you say... It sounds like... The way you described it originally was it sounds like an, uh, a libertarian paradise. <laughs> but, like, what, what was the general sense? Do people like their... They like the fact that they're sort of left alone, say, on the whole? Do they like the fact it's quiet? They like the fact that they can get on with doing what they want? They like the fact they don't pay tax... Etc. Is that you, well, you don't not pay tax? You well, do pay tax. That's a very you don't get option. very much for it, hmm. and that's why you don't pay very much tax. Yeah. Um, but is there a culture of then? There's not a political a cult. What's the culture of Sark in, I think in that sense? The culture, if I can describe it, and everyone is subjective in that regard, is that. We have a true minimalist government. We have five government employees. So there are these 18 members of parliament um, and the speaker and the senior. And then there are, I think, four or five employees, which includes the island doctor, for example. And oh, no. Are you, if you're going to include, going to go wider, it would be... So the, the back office of government has about four or five-ish. Uh, but then the island also employs an island workforce that looks after the roads and the rubbish. Uh, it employs people to work in the school, so that's three full-time teachers and TAs. Uh, and we have a medical practice, which has uh, a doctor, GP, um, and, and administration and uh, a nursing staff as well. Yeah. And then imagine a back office with four or five people. Government can't do much. And the forms for everything are simple. So if you want to have a license for, I don't know, a bar or for an Airbnb, um, everything is very simple, a bit like it used to be in Europe in the 1980s. So there's some regulation, but it's very humane, just as our tax form is really one page. I mean, it's got a second page, but that's just where you sign. Um, and I think that is widely appreciated, and this is why people love living there. And I think there's a consensus that this should stay the same. Uh, in terms of issues, there are discussions around the question of making sure SARC stays independent, affordable housing, um, the tax review, I think, was a quite widely discussed matter among the population, as far as I could tell. Yeah. But, but basically, the state of the roads or... Who builds uh, the roads? Uh, Sark does. Sark. And who builds the harbour? Uh, well, Sark employed someone to build the harbour. But from tax it, money? Or? Uh, it was from this landing tax. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was opened in... <clears throat> 1949 by the Duke of Edinburgh at the time. And if you renovated the harbour now, would it be a private endeavour? To be discussed. Yeah. Because, I mean, these are, these, the, you know, like in the free cities world, obviously there's there's many different ideas about how you should run a, a place like that. And um, I'm just wondering what your what your own personal opinions are about things like that. Do you do you think the role of the the state is not the, the role of the Sark government is should be capped at I don't know X whatever. No, I, no. I mean, I, it's nice to have the Sark government sort of going out and deciding what it is that the island wants to do. So if it can genuinely um, gather that information and say it is a consensus that we do. X. Um, it doesn't then have to do anything more than employ somebody to do X for it. Hmm. So, you know, government services of government that it calls on to do stuff on its behalf, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Hmm. Um, and because so, you can't borrow money, you probably will have to put it out to the private sector. Yeah, but, you know, there are ways of, of building up a reserve. Hmm. Um, you know, if you're fiscally prudent about things, you can build up a reserve. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the, so what we've demonstrated is that you can go to the community and find out what they want if you do it in um, a sort of non-political uh, way without saying it's this faction of the island that wants to do that so this well, is presumably the this... de- different demographics want different things yeah and, and it's... the older demographic as well i would imagine the the more it would lean towards those kind of things and which aren't necessarily good for the island because then you want to attract youngsters and you know. so the older demographic is very conservative with a small c doesn't like change uh, wants it to be the way they remembered it mm-hmm. when they were younger um, and you know that just sort of tends to gum things up but that doesn't mean to say that they're not they're not stupid so they can see that there are elements of the island that could do with improvement uh, and, and we can help that it's just very difficult to put Sark into a box so in a way you could say that we're completely misplaced attending something like the free cities um, gathering because what we're proposing and what we have is very, very different. And I doubt you could walk around Sark and find many people who tell you I'm a libertarian. That it's, it's not even a subject to talk about. At the same time, for example, Sark has no employment law. You know, It is a libertarian paradise for entrepreneurs because it has no employment law. But no one thinks about it like that. So where do you place that? And as you've gathered from this conversation we've now spoken for, I think just over an hour, and we've explained to you like, 2% of what there is to know about Sark, <laughs> which is why I published a 330-page book once to explain to people how Sark works. And those people who read it said, this is like the Bible, <laughs> you know, the Sark Bible. It, the Sark Bible. Um, but, it's a quirky place. But you go, you go back to that, you know, no employment law. We, we don't need employment law. We, know, we need good employers that behave well towards their employees. So, you know, there is a libertarian view that that's great, for employers, well, actually, you've got to think about the employees as well. It's got to be as good for the employees as it is for the employers. Otherwise, you get an imbalance and there's you get distrust and we can't afford to have any of that stuff. Um, so mm. I'm just trying to imagine in my mind the, 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 the development kind of timeline. If you, if you get all the properties and then... How is it? How do you? How do you attract? Like, because I think you know, families are probably well. If you if you want a, if you want longevity, you, you need families and you need generations of families, don't you? Yeah. And um, that's a big that's a big ask. And I know that because I have a family now. And before I had a family, I was living all over the world. Sure. You know, you name it. I'd be living in Honduras now if I wasn't. Uh, oh no, no, I'd be living in El Salvador now actually if I wasn't. If I didn't have my family. And so it's a, I find that one of the trickiest things. The, the people that are likely to come might be digital nomads, but they're the ones that are likely to leave as well. No, no, if, no, no. no, no. Um, I, I think there's a misconception here. So, I mean, first, we have no problem at all attracting people. We, we literally already have a waiting list of sorts for moving to Sark. Right. Um, there's no official waiting list. It's just that there's a certain amount of real estate available and there's not enough and people are waiting to be able to move to Sark. And um, we have absolutely no problem attracting, it's usually either families or single men, but there's a lot of families interested in Sark and it's a place that just attracts people. So th- this is not the issue. The question is where to put them. Yeah. I, I, but you, you mentioned way back, you says, how big do you have to be in order to get a secondary school? Yeah. 
well, you probably have to be bigger than Salt can be to have a secondary school. So the only way you could have a secondary school on Sark was if it was a special endeavour to have a school on Sark and you imported all the children and the teachers and made it a school on an island. Mm. So the population required to have a school is probably 20,000. So Guernsey, with a population of 63,000, has got three secondary schools and a number of small mm. private ones. What a um, and so that that's the, the amount of mass, population mass you'd have to have. We can't put that number of people on the island. It's just not big enough. Mm. Uh, so secondary schooling, unless we have, you know, we could persuade a school to come and set up on Sark, which, you know, it's not, it, I'd never say never. And it'd be a great place to, bring kids up it is a great place to bring kids up um, but you're just going to have to live with the fact that you cannot do secondary education when you don't have a critical mass of students is there is there a, a type of person when you say families want to move there is there a type of family for example is it a type of family that might be homeschooling their kids and would do online schooling from the age 13 or whatever and that would give you the ability to have that demographic still living on the island during yeah, yeah. that time. Um, there are people who are homeschooling. Absolutely, it's it's, it's allowable. Um, we, we don't say no. There is a sort of a quality control check via the board of education and the education services, uh, and we we buy into the education services of Guernsey to give us that professional cover to make sure that children who are being homeschooled are not being disadvantaged by not. Um, and I would say that, that you know it wouldn't work for me. Uh, as an individual, because it's the social element of being around lots of other people that, that give you a, a, a way of interacting with the world when you need to interact with the world. If you've never moved outside a family unit, uh, then it becomes th just that more difficult to, in to in interact with the rest of what, the world. What, what's, what's, I mean, <clears throat> homeschooling's you know, evolved massively in the last, since the on, uh, online revolutions happened. And what you, because I homeschooled our kids for a year when we went traveling. And what we realized was that homeschooling is just um, your kids living at home. Um, but when you're in a group, so if, if you're living in a town and there's a group of homeschoolers all there. They you, all get together. They all get together. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, no, and you do have that element. And, and that, uh, that I could easily see working on a place like Sark, that the schools, the, the schooling mechanism was much more decentralized, much more like down to them to, to work it out. And, and getting like one of my buddies, Dan, he's here, the, he, you know, the conference. His whole, he's got four kids, all three of them now are homeschooled and they do it all online, but they have in real life ev events and things happening all the time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work out how to, <laughs> how to, how to populate the island myself. And I, <clears throat> cause I'm in that phase, I'm yeah. three kids, uh, you know, we live, we live in a, we live in a similar place to Sark, but on the mainland, I live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. So I know what it's like and I know what, how much it's worth to me. But the school bus picks them up, takes them to school. And our local secondary school is also a brilliant school. A brilliant school. It's a farm, you know, it's got a farm on, on site and it's got all these kind of things. And, but the thought of my kids 
going to the neighboring town and not just per day, every day, like for, for, for weeks on end, essentially boarding school. That, that would put me off. And, um, you know, but, you, know you, you can do that because you've got a big enough environment around you. Yeah. So uh, you can't do that on site. We don't have yet, it's possible to have a bus service boat that could take people all weather every morning and every evening and just do that bus journey to Guernsey and then come home again. 30, 30 minutes each way, as you say. Well, like, you know, at the moment, you know, d- change the boat type, you could change that timing. Mm. Yeah. But in a way, I mean, what you're addressing is, yes, it's an issue, but it's also not an issue. Sark has this incredible attraction to a lot of people. So when I launched this campaign three years ago, the fact that it went viral and I was in every single newspaper in Argentina and God knows where else shows that there's some some certain magic to this. And we have the luxury that we don't need to attract a lot of people. You know, if we go from, say, 500 to, for argument's sake, 1,500, that's 1,000 people. Um, these people are literally finding their way to us by hearing about the island because it attracts this incredible media attention. On an ongoing basis, we constantly get media inquiries. The world is interested in SARC. So um, it has a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why not to move to SARC. But for some people, it just fits perfectly and they're willing to put up with all the quirks and the difficulties. And there's enough of them. And so that's not an issue. Mm. And the fact that I was approached by so many people again at your conference who asked me about how can I move there, you know, and we looked at this three years ago and my wife wasn't in favor of it, but now my wife was here and they heard you speak. And da, da, da. So it's a product that in a way sells itself to a niche market, but we will never be more than a niche market. Something I just thought of. What, did, what happened to Sark during the pandemic? Did you come up with your own rules? And it was, it was managed very well by the Channel Islands as a whole. Uh, and essentially, we stopped people moving to and from the island. So we just said, the boat service will bring goods and serv- you know, goods over. And we'll deal with the, the packaging. So we can disinfect that. And you can go to the shop and ring the shop, give your order. They'll deliver it to you. Um, so we had a two, three week actual period of lockdown when people were confined to their houses. But once that was over... The island was a, a big bubble. bubble, mm. And eventually, we, we were a big bubble with the rest of the bailiwick, so we could go to Guernsey, no restriction. We actually bubbled with the Isle of Man as well. Uh, and it wouldn't have been long, and we were on the cusp of bubbling with um, Iceland. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, you know all islands... <laughs> Why with, Iceland? Well, it's an island that had a similar... Do you get any trans- traffic no, coming from Iceland? No, it was just, no. it was just that, <laughs> that we were looking for places that you know were, were behaving in a similar way. Hmm. And in order to keep commerce going, in order to keep things ticking over, you need to have that, uh, that sort of cross-fertilisation of, you know, I'll, I'll come to you, you know, if you send people to us and we're spending money in our own jurisdictions. So um, we, we actually, we had a very good tourist season um, that year because we were bubbled with Guernsey, Guernsey couldn't go anywhere else. Mm. And they suddenly realised that there were two completely different islands. So Alderney was in, in amongst the mix. So Sark is, is well known to Guernsey people anyway, and they, they come across in their droves on a regular basis. But Alderney in particular uh, found that Guernsey people were coming and going, gosh, I, you know, I haven't been here for 20 years. 
Hmm. And it's really nice. And what are the transport links to Sark anyway? Like, so it's, ha- just, it's just a ferry. From? Guernsey. Um, oh, right. So you can't, you can't go from mainland UK to direct unless you have your own boat. Uh, you, yeah, if you've got your own boat, of course you can. And if you upgraded the uh, harbour, would that be a thing? Or? Well, upgrading the harbour is always well, a possibility, but it's prohibitively expensive. Doing anything in the sea. O- on that scale. Yeah, it's is it deep enough for um, all kinds of vessels? Well, what you can do is you can take a, a ferry from the UK mainland to Guernsey, and then from Guernsey you take the boat to Sark. The same from France. There are boats from France to Jersey and to Guernsey. Uh, and then from there you can go to Sark. During summer there's a direct boat sometimes from Jersey to Sark. The problem is always economies of scale and critical mass. You can't have a direct connection from the UK to Sark. The, the harbour is not big enough and there's just not enough people who want to go. And, and you, said, you, you mentioned you know, your, your business life, that you based yourself in Sark. What's that like? Like how often are you off and away and coming back? And it's off all the time. I'm off a lot. And um, there, is, there was an article in the Financial Times about Sark where the author wrote that the Sarkis seem to be a well-traveled people. They're constantly going somewhere else. Uh, and I'm one of them. And for me, so if you live in London, to get to Heathrow takes you about an hour. Uh, in Sark, you know, I'm in Guernsey in 35 minutes and then I take a taxi to the airport. It does take me a bit more than an hour to get to the airport. But frankly, given the lifestyle that I enjoy in many ways, it's a very, very small price to pay. Um, yeah, it puts off a lot of people, but you know, um, those who are on SARC are very happy that we don't have an airport, we don't have uh, cars mm. and all that. And on the way to the airport, I sometimes see dolphins, and that's not too bad. It takes me four hours to get to the airport from where so I am. There you go. Yeah. But I mean, if you time it right, you can get to central London in three hours. I've done my record was from my doorstep to London Victoria Station in three hours and twenty minutes. That's when everything was nicely aligned. So, what does that involve? A boat to Guernsey. I walk down the harbour and a flight to the city airport. Yes, I walk down the harbour. I take the boat. I take a taxi to Guernsey Airport. Fly thirty-five minutes to Gatwick. Take the Gatwick Express to Victoria, and then you're there. And what kind of prices are those uh, things? All in three hundred pounds return. Like, how much is it to get from Guernsey to you on a ferry? If I, if I, on foot or whatever. A return is thirty-five quid. And the and the flight from Guernsey to London. Two fifty. Does it go anywhere else? That, does that flight go in- to other places in the UK, but not really to to the continent? We're, we're very. Yeah. directed towards the UK. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted more international uh, destinations, you'd need to go to a, G- Jersey, which has a bigger airport. Um, so Guernsey is um, uh, serviced by Aurini, which is a state-owned airline. It goes to Edinburgh, Birmingham, Bristol, Southampton, Exeter, um, Gatwick. Uh, I think that's probably it. But, you know, it's a, it's a regional um, UK airline. So, what is the what is the most what's the hot thing now on your agenda? Like, what is it that you are most focused on? I think community engagement on an ongoing basis, because we have now fine tuned our ideas about what is possible in such a way that we can engage with key stakeholders in a very productive way. Yeah, we have to do a deal. <laughs> yeah, so we we've got to do that deal. As in the deal with the, the getting the hundred, getting the money, and prove, well, actually, proving to them, it's it's getting an, a, a proper understanding of the real estate. Um, so that due diligence process, so that you know we can say 
here's the price. We understand what the price is. They, the, the, the party selling understand what the price is. And we do that deal. I think, I mean, uh, what, uh, what, if people are leaving properties to go derelict, presumably they don't care about them anymore. Is, 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 yeah, but once, once you ask them to sell, they want five times the normal price. I ah. mean, it's, it's a complicated dance, which we have to do with multiple parties at the same time to make it all come together. And it's not, um, it's, what is it, families that have left and gone home? Or what? Uh, a lot of inheritance cases because the market hasn't moved for so long. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, families that have been there for a long time, they still can't borrow money. Mm. So you can't invest in your property. Mm. And that's how most of us go about doing improvements. But can you get a, a percentage of them and then go ahead with the plan, which then allows other people to get mortgages on properties that you couldn't buy, for example, if someone can't sell you or doesn't want to say someone? Yeah, no, is, okay. that, is, that, is that part? Could that be a plan? Well, it's certainly our intention that, you know, mortgages are not just for us. Yeah. Therefore, anyone. Um, and, and yes, of course, there'll be families that proudly tell you that they've never sold ever mm. in the last 457 years or whatever it is. Um, and they have no intention of doing so. But there are cases that, to your question, sit very much in the middle between, you know, us buying them out or nothing happening at all. There will be cases where we'll have conversations with people who say, I don't want to sell to you, but I want to be part of a wider plan to do something sensible. I don't have the money to do something with the real estate that I own. It's a large, you know, uh, estate. Why don't we do something together? And of course, you know, we'll mm -hmm. consider that as well. We've actually had conversations to this end. And I would imagine at least the majority of people are behind the project on the island. I mean, is there, is, does anyone not like the prospect of... Of, of course, there are people who don't like it, and even if they lose their shop or whatever, are there people that don't care about even the, having a shop? I, I think what there is a large consensus that something has to happen on Sark because Sark is stuck in a way that is becoming quite worrying to a lot of people. We've just had a very bad tourist season again because of weather and other factors such as secular trends working against the island. It's much cheaper to fly to Spain. Uh, and go into a nice hotel there and have guaranteed sunshine. The Channel Islands are not on the up when it comes to tourism, and Sark is suffering under that. And there's a wide uh, realization among the population that something has to give. What exactly it is that should happen now, I think there's no sufficient consensus yet. I think there's a sort of consensus, but we have more work to do there with stakeholders. Yeah, I'm being and, critical of ourselves now. Yeah, and we need, we need to go back to that community engagement process. We've done the first bit, which is tell us what you think. Now it's, tell us how you think it should develop. What, you know, what are the tangible things that the community wants to happen? And, and I haven't told you yet, Christopher, just, just before I walked in here, a, shall I say, influential member of the community sent me a text message asking, are you going to do something with the community to speak specifically about your plans? So there's a desire to learn more. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. Hmm. So, and we've been super transparent um, more so than anyone else on the island has ever been. And we'll continue on that path. And I think eventually all of these bits will fall into place before too long. I think we're on a good course. Before you go, um, if I want to come there as a tourist, where do I stay and what can I do? There are a whole number of hotels on the island, many if not all of which shut during winter for lack of visitors. There are lots of Airbnbs and bed and breakfasts. If you go to sark.co.uk, that's the tourist website, and you'll find all the accommodation options on there. 
Um, lots of information about what you can do and activities to book for your kids, uh, things about logistics. It's all available on the internet and you can always email us and we'll be happy to help. Well, Sven, Christopher, thank you for enlightening me. I, I think it's a brilliant project, um, but I, it has started me thinking. And I, I don't think it's an easy thing to solve because of the nature of the island. And um, yeah, I, we're going to ponder it. I'm going to keep pondering it because it's an interesting predicament, I think. Yeah. I, I, you know, and but a brilliant opportunity, nevertheless. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm almost a little bit jealous that I, I can't not doing something because I feel like there's some solutions to be found in amongst yeah. all those things. I like a good challenge like that, you know. Yeah, but from what I've heard of what you've said, Sark doesn't suit your circumstances at your time of life. Well, right yeah, now. but does it? But I, but, but Sark itself does, you see, because I live in a place like Sark without the coast. Um, so I know it suits my personality type, but I know that I could probably solve the thing that it doesn't suit me about in the sense that, for example, I have plenty of friends who are exactly like me, yet their kids online school. And I know they could, they don't care where they live in, in the same way that other people do. They want to live somewhere nice. Uh, I must admit, transport links are an important thing and that's you have to really desire that. But I've already proved that I do that because it takes me longer to get to the airport than you. So, you know... I think it's a I think it's a brilliant challenge and I, I wish you all the best. I wish you all good luck. Thanks for the great conversation. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Pleasure.